dive right in. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Collective. We have another awesome show for you all today. Uh, I have all kinds of great topics listed on my right side of my screen right here. But before we go anywhere, I just want to make sure to remind everybody to hit the like button, subscribe to the show, hit the notification bell, and you'll get a little email every time we go live, which is every day. So uh, any thoughts, any questions, any topics off the top of you guys' head, anything that uh, strike in the mood today before I dive into anything? Super quick. I just wanted to give a nod to Alan and thank you to Alan for uh, arranging to some degree getting Chris Howder over here yesterday. Dude, what a combo that was. It was yeah. so good to talk to that guy. So, Alan, thank you. Yeah, most welcome. It was outstanding. Um, okay, well, let's dive right into a topic, I guess, if there's no objections. Uh, let's see, which one are we going to do today? I got a good one. Boundaries are limiting and yet freeing. This is the whole concept behind Jocko's discipline equals freedom, right? And the reason I want to talk about it is the fact that I, I've heard a lot of griping from people that start something new. Oh, it's hard. It's hard to change my, uh, my habits. It's difficult to engage into a new system or it, it, I, I find it really challenging when X, Y, Z, whatever excuse you want to add into it. Um, but I wanted to really kind of hammer on the point, the fact that, you know, setting boundaries for yourself is not only limiting, but it actually is freeing. So anybody want to jump on this one first, Alan, you want to jump in here? Sure. Um, so one of the things that I actually hear a lot about is, um, the constant, um, you know, no one cares, work harder, um, that I think there's there's advantages and positive message to that. Um, I think that can also be severely misguiding. Um, one of the things that I learned early on, um, and I'm sure pretty much anyone who started jujitsu um, or a sport, any sport that they're passionate about, they have um, such an overwhelming uh, attraction to the sport, wanting to do it every day, wanting to constantly do it that you tend to ignore your injuries. You tend to ignore, um, the, the, the signals that your body's telling you, um, and your mind, you know, to, to slow it down or, you know, to play it smart. Um, I think Chris touched on it, um, yesterday a little bit is, is be smart with your training partners when you get to an older age, um, kind of piggybacking off that, uh, in the beginning, I think that's a huge thing to have, have an understanding of as well is, going into it so headstrong that you you tend to ignore the simple concepts that you would apply to anything else in your life. Um, just because it's an overwhelming, um, <laughs> I'm going to use this appropriately, obsession. Um, I, I was obsessed uh, to the point where I started in clean I moved down to to go to school and realized after one year of, of university in an area where didn't have jujitsu, that was enough for me. So I had to move five hours north just so I could drive an hour and a half one way so I could do jujitsu every day. Now, financially, it didn't make any sense. Um, Time-wise, it didn't make any sense. 
but the only thing I was fixated on was, was getting my training in, um, ignoring injuries, ignoring, you know, the, the, I remember having an injury in my right foot, uh, right ankle and my left shoulder that could have healed up in a couple of months and I could have got back to it without that. But it was something that persisted for years just because I would ignore it and just keep going through. So I agree that it, it certainly is a, a great mindset to have, but having those limitations and setting your own personal limitations, extremely important for the longevity of whatever you're getting into. Yeah, it's a great point. Julie or Sean, any thoughts on this one? Sean, Julie? Sure. Yeah, I'll jump in. I think uh, those are some great points, Alan, and I would agree. I mean, uh, just coming from my own experience as an athlete and Sean uh, being my performance coach for over a decade, he would probably agree with this as well. You just want to keep pushing and pushing and training. And even if you do feel good and you don't have injuries, I was pretty lucky to be quite a healthy athlete and not having a lot of injuries. So, uh, you know, always pushing and not questioning Sean in terms of, did he know what he was doing? But like, give me more, give me more. I've got to push, push, push. And he would always reel me in. So I think it's important to have either a coach or a mentor that there is a balance that you can keep pushing, but you have to know where the limits are and take those rest days. So it is important to have someone to guide you through. And now on the flip side, I'm on the coach end of it. So I do catch myself now and again, I'm self-coach going back to the athlete mindset. So I have to make sure that I'm on top of it for myself, but as well as my athletes, you have to find a balance. When can you push them? When do they need a break? Pushing the limits, but still being safe and getting them to the point you want them for whatever race is coming up. A balance between pushing the limits, but also, you know, being safe and smart. Yeah, that's a great point. Sean? Yeah, just in in alignment with Alan and Julie, and just to add uh, a, a touch more to the conversation, I think that boundaries are learned and observed. And so through a personal experience, you'll teach yourself your own limits to some degree as the years unfold, but you can also observe the boundaries within other people. And so I'll use myself as an example, you know, that skinny underperforming kid that joined the military, what, while I was exploring myself, I was actually learning more by exploring others or by observing others. So my boundaries were actually being set by the men all around me where I was getting to see, oh, that's even possible. Wow, you can levitate. I'm going to try levitating. And so seeing... That work out. Yeah, it didn't, didn't work that well, actually. <laughs> I, I just kept falling. So, um, you know, seeing other, other characters that were just large and in charge, it made me realize that, oh, that's possible. So boundaries are our own set boundaries and they're the boundaries of everyone set around us so learned and observed now why why is it important uh to pursue your boundaries and establish what you can and can't do or what you are or aren't capable of uh, in the real time is because eventually you'll end up looking like alan and julie and me as coaches and the only way that you can explain not to do what i've done is to have done what I've done and then be able to verbalize that. Don't be me. 
don't ignore your ankle. Don't ignore your foot. Don't ignore your shoulder or dot, dot, dot. These are lessons that we've learned that we're responsible to pass on in order to free it up for others. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot to be said for the physical side of it, of maintaining boundaries and um, the, the, the physical, you know, injuries or issues. And there's always, there's something to be said for pushing through. There's a, like, there's times and places where you got to push the pain aside and you got to get the job done. But there's also the psychological side of it as well that I wanted to get into in that, you know, some Sometimes you hang around with people that are just not the greatest people around. And then you got to set it eventually. If you want to go somewhere, you want to do something, you want to get involved in something uh, bigger that's going to take you away from those people and they will cut you down or talk, talk smack behind your back, anything like that. If you were to separate from them. And sometimes those boundaries become emotional and you have to be able to say, okay, enough, done, and step away from them. Do you guys find that, I imagine you guys probably had to do something similar, but do you find that it is harder to do the emotional side versus the physical? Or do you find them about the same? Any thoughts? Sure, I'll, I'll jump in. I, I don't find it overly difficult, to be honest, to separate myself emotionally from something that I feel is either small-minded or limiting. And uh, maybe... It, Maybe it's my greatest strength. Maybe it's my greatest weakness. I'm not sure, but I'm, I find it pretty easy to emotionally detach from something that is a problem in respect to either a relationship or a friendship or a something that is negative. If, if it sucks, I'll bounce it. No problem. And, uh, I always hope that I always try to adjust the suck. I'll always try to recalibrate the relationship or I'll always try to turn it into something positive. But but if it's holding me back, and I don't mean selfishly, but if I can see how it's negatively impacting me and those around me, bounce. Good point. Alan? So, actually, great point. Um, now, that's the only problems that you can already recognize. What yeah, about the ones that you Ellen. don't recognize? Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? I think that's mm -hmm. the, the hardest one. And I think that's where you're going off of chances that the, the ability to recognize that there's a problem within that environment is probably the most difficult because if everyone's at a certain standard, well, you're at that standard too, you know? So if you're doing a little bit better, but that is still that same level, I think that probably be the hardest part is just recognizing that, that you're stagnant or that you're not improving or based off your environment, rather than breaking away that entirely like just like you were saying earlier like this is possible i can make this happen i can go to this this you know next level um but uh, i don't know how it is in in the canadian forces um and julie i'll, I'll go a little bit in the background um but in a non-commissioned officer um once you become enlisted to a non-commissioned officer one of the hardest things for enlisted men to do is came up three, four years with the same group, all of a sudden you get promoted. You're no longer so living in hard. the barracks. You have to separate. You know what I mean? They're no longer your buddies. Now they work for you. You're a non-commissioned officer and your your entire life is separated. For me, that was one of the big um, understandings of boundaries you know, that had to be made and for, for good reason. You know? um, 
but recognizing that within that environment, I think if you can absolutely, um, you know, make that change, it's just recognize it. I think it's probably the hardest part. Yeah. That's a tough one. Julie, any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that I did have some challenges with, but, uh, it takes time. And again, to Alan's point, you have to recognize it. So being able to just step away from a moment and see that perhaps there is something going on. So you just have to take a moment and, and sometimes you have to remove yourself from the situation, come back, reevaluate and notice that there is something uh, going on or some sort of challenge um, that you need to uh, step up. Yeah. Sean, you had a point? Well, I did just, Alan made me think of it. I've actually talked about this in the past and, and it, I found it extremely challenging, Alan, when I was going from uh, junior NCO to senior NCO. The moment that I got promoted, I was like, I don't want this. That means I'm not going to be able to hang out with the troops. And so uh, the regimental sergeant major had to kind of like jack me up and say, you're moving out of those shacks into those shacks and I don't want to hear another word from you. Uh, it, it was kind of like that. So I definitely didn't want to bounce up because I felt like I was, you know, leaving my men behind for uh, uh, lack of a better term. But uh, it took me a little while to get right with it. But this is how I got right with it. Because you're absolutely right. There is a very important distinction between junior NCO and senior NCO. And once I moved into senior NCO, I had to kind of start telling myself the best thing that I can do now since I've left the troops is try to encourage the troops to follow my path. So that's how I kind of got right with it was try to not influence, but inspire the junior NCOs to step quote unquote, step up on the path that I was following. And it made it easier for me to some degree. That, that term that you just used, I think that's perfect. The, the out versus up, right? Mm -hmm. You moved out and not, up you don't recognize you're going up you just feel like you're being moved out mm -hmm. that's perfectly describes the situation on there because you in what the sergeant major was trying to say you're moving up but if you're saying moving out because you just recognize in the separation at that time but as a coach or a leader they're recognizing you're moving up but you have to separate yourself from that 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 terminology right there i think just nailed it right there yeah, it's it's a fascinating little not a dichotomy, but it's a fascinating little moment. I, I wish everyone got to experience it and move through it to figure out who they are. I think it's the same thing for um, becoming from a, a a person to an athlete and most importantly, an athlete to an elite athlete, because you have to take everything up to a certain, you know, another level, you know, past what the standard is and how far can you break those standards? Hmm. Yeah, and, and Julie would be a perfect case uh, study in this, in the sense that uh, when she started, when I started coaching her, she started working with me, or I, more correctly, I started working for her. She, it, she was already a good racer. She just wasn't the kind of racer that she is now. So she's had, she's got the luxury of being able to look back over a decade plus and and realize her evolutionary process. It it should be as clear as can be to her now. But on day one, it's impossible to see what you're you're pursuing or what you can become. And so it, it becomes more of an academic understanding of I'm here at day one. And if I stay in the game, I can become awesome. Well, it's easy to understand for Julie now. She lived that path, but it's hard on day one. And so 
the boundaries that we set for ourselves are sometimes not just, we're not just limiting ourselves. It's just a matter of, we just don't know. We can't even see what's in front of us. So even if you're not limiting yourself, you're almost limited just simply based on the lack of understanding that's in front of you. So find a mentor, a guide, or a coach that can even just say, hey, you know what? If you start today, this was this is what 10 years could look like for you. You could be mega awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. You have to find, to Sean's point, you have to find a mentor or a coach to help you see the big picture. And often, I mean, there's gains from the physical aspect, of course, but really, truly a lot of it to reach your full potential is the mental game, getting mentally stronger, uh, believing that you can get through in the hard times. So you've got to really work on that mental game. And I think that's the biggest jump from moving to uh, better as an athlete or as a person, a leader or a coach. So Julie, actually question for you specifically, the um, when you first started out, and and the the biking sorry cycling i i don't want to say the wrong term cycling or biking which one whichever yeah it's it's all good proper terminology uh cycling then was it like a like a hobby used to meet with groups and then go out and then you realized you wanted to do better at it and did you separate from that initial group that you had into branching off with sean to become that from athlete to elite athlete. Do you remember that separation? Well, it's a great question. Uh, When I started, I was just riding, just generally just uh, nothing competitive. And then I started to do a couple low level races and I started to look around and, you know, again, you always see who's around you. And at the time I saw at a bunch of races, the team that I initially started with, Dead Goat Racing, and a lot of the races, there were dead goat jerseys and a lot of them were on the podium. So I thought, man, these girls and guys know what they're doing. They seem to know what's happening. So I began and I thought, well, maybe they'll take me on and I can learn something from the dead goat racing team. So initially I started with them. At the time, there weren't a lot of females. It was mostly men. So typically I would show up for a group ride with them and I'd be the only girl and just try to hang on back of the pack. And my husband joined as well. And we kind of would look at each other and go, oh man, I hope we see someone on the shrine. Like, will we see them at the end or it's on? And as we went forward, we started to see more and more people. So that was good. And Sean, so that was an improvement. I thought, okay, well, this is good. And uh, it's a good starting point. At the time, Sean was also uh, part of the Dead Goat Racing team. And same thing, I saw him in a couple of races and a man, he looks like a bit of a banger and knows what he's doing. So I'm at a couple 24 hour races. And then I thought, well, if I want to get into this and elevate my game, I need to get involved with someone who knows what they're doing. He seems like the man. So then I went down the path with Sean uh, after that. Mm. And and just a quick uh, note, because your your question is is fascinating, Alan, and I'm sure we could spend several days just talking about that that single question. When Julie um, joined my gong show, when she she joined the Cirque du Soleil of Sean, uh, within about 24 hours, usually I would say to an athlete, anyone who joined, it was this: I don't care what you thought before you joined. Now you're a professional. 
You'll stop thinking like an amateur. You'll start thinking like a professional. Even if you don't think you're a professional, you now are. It was my job to teach someone how to be a professional, irrespective of their race results, irrespective of what their dreamy dreams were. My job was to not only make them kick ass, but make them understand that there is zero distinction between an amateur and a professional other than mindset. I don't care what bike you own, what socks you put on, what food you eat. All of that can be shifted to professionalism, not amateurism. So there's no reason for anyone to not be able to switch their mindset to a professional approach in anything. It's just a mind shift. And if you can shift your mind in a millisecond, and then with a little bit of mentorship or guidance or leadership, you can cement a path of professionalism that will spread out into the all aspects of your life. And presto changeo, Julie on day one was thinking and acting like a professional. And 10 plus years later, she's thinking and acting like a professional. That's a great point. Do you guys find that the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that the, some of the challenge at least in, in terms of actually setting the boundaries, A, we've talked about not knowing, right? That's a big part. And one of the, one of the things that I had to do actually um, was listen to the people around me. <laughs> and I found that one of the hardest parts of it was, the fact of thinking, oh no, I, like I'm good to go. Like Sean and I had this con conversation before where I was, I thought I was good to go. I was surrounded by people. As you said, Alan, uh, earlier, like the standard is here. We're all here. But then you have to listen to someone else say, you're not good to go. This isn't working. Maybe you should be trying harder. Maybe you could be doing whatever. Do you find that that, do you, did you guys find that moment on your own? Or was it somebody else that was like, you need to sort your stuff out. Any issues? So the professionalism, um, amateur to professional, great point. The, it's the way that I translate that to jiu-jitsu is I tell my guys I only train black belts. Hmm. I don't I don't coach white belts, blue belts, purple belts, but I only, I only coach black belts. Everything that I do that I teach is my responsibility for the athlete to understand their part in this is to be able to sit there, comprehend what I'm, what I'm teaching and ask questions if they don't fully comprehend it. Other than that, it is my job to disseminate that information to, to, you know, reword it in a method that they can understand so they can understand that, but that is my job. Their job is to show up, have an open mind and give me the full potential on that and trust the techniques. Um, now, sorry, chance been hitting the head a lot. You said <laughs> yeah, no worries. Question again. Yeah. We all, we all have, we all have, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say we've, we've, we've all been there. <laughs> brain dump. Um, the question I'm asking is like, do you find the challenge of, ha of listening to somebody else of having that humility, the, hum the, humble piece to go maybe this guy's right maybe this person who's telling me that i'm not doing it right is actually right versus i'm doing it right do you think that's the the harder part the hardest part of it all or do you think it's more something else um for for me personally um yeah 
you've heard that saying that Matt doesn't lie. Um, and so it was a self-discovery type thing where I would have a technique that worked on, you know, A to M, but it would have worked from N to Z. And so I knew that there was something off. So that was a very obvious um, indication that I, I wasn't doing something right. And I was such a perfectionist that I wanted to make sure that that worked on everybody. So I want to know all the details, all the ins and outs. And, you know, when I started 27 years ago, holy shit, 27 years, um, there was no internet that we had hardcover, you know, you know, sorry, um, soft cover books. Um, we had the VHS tapes, mm -hmm. you know, um, and other than that, trying to find people to roll with to try to, you know, you know, understand, you know, the different aspects for me was the big thing, you know, competing was, was a huge eye opener on like the things that I needed. Um, conditioning, you know, the, the strength conditioning portion was never something that was taught at my gym. The takedown aspects was something that was, I remember in 12 years being under the same instructor, I can count on one hand how many times they, they showed takedowns. So for me, as a, it was as a blue belt after the first Pan Ams I did in 2000, um, I realized how many holes that I had in my game and how many things that I needed to work on for myself to be able to succeed on the competitive side of it. But all based off from experience, you know, this failed, I lost at this because of that, or I got taken down because of this, I need to have a response for that. But a lot of it was, well, pretty much all of it was based off experience and things that I needed. Um, now on the ground, um, I'm probably one of the worst people to coach. And I remember Carlos. Machado why why is that? Me. Why, why, why do you say that? <laughs> um, I didn't care about points and that would frustrate the living shit because I'd be up on points. Yeah, I dig it. Yeah. Yeah. And then 30 seconds to go, I'm still chasing that arm bar. And I'm losing points left and right. And my coaches are yelling at me, stop, 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 just hold, hold. And I'm like, I'm right there. I got this. And then I'd lose the match. And I wouldn't be upset other than I didn't get the submission. My coaches would be upset because you lost the podium. Yeah, I know? dig it. Mm -hmm. But I don't see, like, probably until I was a third-degree black belt competing, I didn't give, I didn't care about points. I wanted the submission. That's the point while we're there. And I'm talking about, I'd, I'd be up on points and then three, you know, three seconds before the bell rang, I, I would have a submission and I was okay with that. I, I mean, that was the purpose of it. So, but I remember Carlos coaching me and him yelling on the side, Hey, Shabar, Shabar, go to the right, go to the right, go, go. We have to step over. Okay. Go ahead and, and uh, Shabar, you have to get to the side, go knee on belly or Okay, okay, play your game, Shabaro. Play your game. Play your, I'll be over to Okay. So it was frustrating beyond belief for them, but that was the hardest thing for me, understanding the competitive mindset versus the mindset that I had constantly in training. Um, that was probably the most hardest thing for my coaches to to try to sync with me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm... I kind of suspected that might be the case. And that's why I asked the question because it might've been frustrating for your coaches, but they should have been frustrated with themselves in not trying to figure out how to properly coach you. And everyone's coachable. 
you've just got to figure out the the right way to skin the cat. And there's so many ways to skin a cat. So that I'm not laying blame at anyone's feet. I'm just saying it's our job to figure out there's always a way. And, and the way is not what's best for us. It's what's best for the person who's in front of us. That's a great point. Julie, any thoughts? That's exactly it, Sean. It's about the athlete, not the coach. And you have to find a way to communicate and get the message to the athlete so they understand the information that you're trying to deliver. So it does come back to the coach. It's our responsibility to, to groom and get the message to the athlete as needed. Do you guys find that as coaches, it is... Uh, when you're coaching someone, do you find that you are setting boundaries for them or do you find that they set the boundaries for themselves and you kind of guide them to it? How does that work? I, I don't believe in boundaries per se when I'm coaching someone. What I do believe in is unlimited abilities. Hmm. And it's my job to push them in a direction or directions so that they can start to maybe just nudge up against their quote unquote limitations I think that we're all capable of so much more. At least that's what I've been exposed to. That's what I've been taught. That's what I know. And it's it's less about what I've put myself through to understand how capable human beings can be. And it's more the observed experience of just being around too many rad master 9000s who are just unbelievable. Like so Sorry, inspirational. Master what? Sorry, Rad Radmaster. Radmaster Rad 9000. Yeah, Radmaster 9000. It's just my it's a term I came up with many many years ago. I just I throw it out every once in a really? while. I know exactly what you're talking about and I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, 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 buddy. yeah, well, welcome <laughs> to my world. That's how my head works as well. So, um the idea being that uh most of my understanding of what humans are capable of is through watching other capable human beings. And as a coach, who am I to think that I'm going to impose my own set of rules of call limitations on a person? I flippity flop that and look at the person in front of me and say, how much can I expose them to their awesomeness and add a little extra inch or two, you know? Mm -hmm. So Alan? This, this is actually perfect. Um, a little bit of disagreement, but on the same topic. Oh, yeah, 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 buddy, um, I know. <laughs> no, th this is perfect, though. Um, so my, I, I did Olympic weightlifting um, for about six years. And the coach that I had was a, I mean, he's world recognized, especially at his weight class. He'd been lifting. Um, he coached, uh, you know, Olympians. So I put all my trust into my coach. The, the problem was my strength was there. Um, I mean, I had the time I had like a, you know, 355 clean and jerk, 275 snatch. I was trying to get it up to, you know, the 315 mark for snatch and 405 for the clean and jerk. And again, my, my strength was there. I mean, I, I was building up my, and this was at the time, I, I still remember that month. Um, I built up to like a 370 clean. So all I was missing was the jerk um, on the snatch. I was doing 265 consistent, you know, probably three out of five with 275. So it was like literally inching back up. The problem was 
is I should have backed down by 75, 80 pounds easy on both lifts. And the reason why is because my mobility wasn't there yet. And mm. my strength wasn't matching my mobility. And I remember trying to get ready for uh, nationals. And I, I try to go up and wait um, as my coach directed. I wasn't ever going up unless he told me. And he kept going up and up. And I was, you know, I was trying to tell him, I was like, this is getting really heavy, you know, I, not for the lift, but for the foundation and trying to support. He's like, you push through, push through, push through. So on one lift, that's all it took was for me to go for that jerk and locked it out. And when I locked it out, my shoulder dropped. That ended my entire Olympic lifting career. So I, I agree because 98% of the athletes that you coach will never understand their true potential, their, their ability to be able to go past that limit by an easy 60% easy if they just gave themselves the chance to and someone to even believe in them saying, you can do this. It, 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 those words coming from someone else can make such an impact, good and bad to the athlete because if you're saying you're good they're going to take your word for it they're going to go through just like i did i put all of my trust into my coach once i wasn't able to lift anymore like he wanted me to because i was trying to rehab it he pretty much gave up on me moved on to the next person mm -hmm. and i had no guidance on how to like rehab myself back and so everything just fell apart um i i got so frustrated that I, you know, it was on me. I should have continued, but I, I was just, I felt like I was just disowned in a sense and I was broken. So I was no good to, to anybody in that sport and never got my mobility back and ended up having to get surgery. And so be it. Yeah. But the, the limits yeah. on that, I think are, are a smart thing, but also recognizing as Sean said, the potential um, that they, they have, they need to recognize it's so important. You know, I, I that's the part that I, I truly agree with is a lot of people, a lot of athletes, even a seasoned athletes don't realize how much more that the coach can see that they're that in a good way, uh, how much more they have to go exercising that safely into where they could be successful is I, I think where, where the, most important lies. Yeah. Great I'm point. glad you made that point, Alan, because I casually threw out my general comment in respect to push hard and then push just a little bit more. Uh, we're all capable of it, but I'm so glad that you raised that point because I was a bit too casual in my generalized statement. There is a time and place, obviously all the time where you've got to ensure that the safety of your athletes or safety of anyone who's under your command and control is first and foremost. Now, why I feel pretty comfortable in being able to say I could push my athletes beyond their own anticipated limitations, and as Julie knows, the only time I accepted someone as an athlete was if they nodded at me and virtually shook my hand with this agreement. You will report to me every day. I want your data uploaded to me every day with your commentary every day. I need to know how you're feeling, how are you doing, how your sleep is, how your nutrition is, how blah, 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 every single freaking day. And if someone couldn't interact with me on the daily from Australia or Europe or wherever, 
if they couldn't do that, you're bounced. I'll I'll let you know. I'll I'll say, hey, you know what? You got to pick up the pace. Hey, you got to get involved with the program. Hey, you got to own your own awesomeness by communicating with me in the real time. If that started slipping, I don't want to be responsible for the pace that I'm going to push into a person if they can't be responsible to get with the program. And that's a two-way communication on the freaking daily because I'm a boutique coach. I don't put out a cookie cutter program. I put out a program that is carefully crafted with a lot of experience and nuance to make sure that Julie, as an example, is awesome Julie, not I'll talk to you next month, Julie. So every single day I was up in everyone's grill, making sure that everything was tweaked for the next day, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, do you have anything to add on that, Julie? Yeah, I mean, I think to Alan's point and to your point, and now it makes more sense because you've elaborated on how you coach and, and ultimately how I coach, is that there is a balance, but it is up to the coach to dig in to see what is happening with the athlete. So with what happened with you, Alan, getting your injury, I mean, it's up to the coach to have that communication and you to communicate back in terms of what's happening so that you don't have an injury. So uh, from a cycling perspective, Sean already mentioned, you have to speak with the athlete. How's your stress? How's your hydration? How is your sleep? What is going on? besides biking that could potentially impact your performance. So you've got to dig deeper and have that communication. So I try to leave uh, the boundaries open as well, but it comes down to the athlete communicating back to you. And perhaps some boundaries do have to be set if there's going to cause uh, injury or backslide in terms of the training. Yeah. Any, uh, you guys got any any other fur, further thoughts? I got uh, I was gonna segue into something else, but I wanted to make sure everybody segue ahoy. Okay, so here's the segue. The, the I think the real challenge, well, a real challenge, I should say, is what happens after the major injury, or what happens when you are you are left to your own devices to try and sort out being left to kind of in the lurch, like Alan was saying, or where you believe that you should have been taken care of more or whatever, but your mindset starts to degrade and then you need to rebuild it. So I want to talk about this a little bit and I'll give you an example was uh, my time in the military was not the greatest in certain time periods. And it, I was continually striving to do better. I wanted to be stronger, faster, do more stuff. And then I would look around at my peers and go, they're barely working. Like, what is going on? How is it that these people are going to get the same cap badge as me? Or how is it these people are going to be, you know, considered the same when I'm working my butt off and they're not? And so my mindset started to degrade. And I started realizing that, you know, I could mail it in, right? I could mail it in easy and still be ahead of these people. I could totally be that. Yeah, no big deal. And that is a very slippery slope because you start to allow yourself more and more slack more and more slack um rather than grace for an injury of like trying to rehab it but the question more is uh, that i want to get into is the degree the degradation of that mindset is one thing and that can happen over time 
but to rebuild it how do we how do we get people out of those little those slumps how do we drive them forward without sounding pedantic like you know work harder nobody cares that kind of stuff how do we rebuild that mindset into you can and you will and you should rather than you know go run 10 miles today just because i said so any thoughts yeah yesterday we were talking with chris and we kind of it was a fun start to the conversation we we're talking about what it means to be an artful complainer and the only way you can be an artful complainer is if you've been in the game long enough to understand the game, if you've been in the suck long enough that you understand the suck, and you've been around guys or girls uh, that are good at complaining. There's complaining called whining, and then there's complaining called being an artful complainer. And so if you're an artful complainer, it's now, now it's almost an amusement. Now it's almost like a, a real experience if you're in amongst friends, as, as uh, Chris was laughing about. If there's a crew of artful complainers, now it takes all of the stuff that you could be complaining about and flips the script into kind of now you're entertaining yourself with how much of a gong show it is. Now, we kind of learned that in the military, as Chris said, and I truly believe that you can be an artful complainer as taught to you through the infantry, etc. But at some point, people forget that complaining can, can be artful. And if they let it slide long enough, let's say a veteran gets out and now it's 10 years later, now they're just a freaking whiner. Now they're just a complainer. They forgot at one point you could complain and, and not make it like loser complaining, where you're just a complainer who likes to complain and annoy everyone around you because you're complaining. Like there's a way to flip that script to make it into kind of, this is the suck and make it fun in a way. And so mindset degradation for you, Chance, you made it about them. They are getting away with it. I'm working so hard. And then you mm -hmm. got lazy. Mm -hmm. And then you became part of they. Mm -hmm. And then you sat in that toxic stew of they, complaining about everything outside of the they group. And your mindset degraded to a point where you were underperforming. The only way to rebuild out of that degradation is to understand that you sucked that you did it to you mm -hmm. that you got sloppy and weak and you started going down the the wrong side of the bell curve and you became they so until you recognize that you're the freaking loser of the moment until you face yourself in the mirror and say it ain't they it's me you gotta own that you degraded and figure out why you degraded and then figure out the way to build out of that degradation no rebuilding starts until you face the hard truth of how you got to where you started. That's a great point. Alan, any, Alan or uh, Julie, any thoughts? I agree fully. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had nothing on that one because that was perfectly exactly. said. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Julie, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, good summary on that, basically. Yeah, I mean, we can all whine and then just let's get on with it and maybe it is gets a bit entertaining or amusement man this really sucks but yeah maybe it does but then let's just get on with it and uh exactly what sean said i mean maybe it's you and you need to take some ownership and move on and up your game yeah 
That's exactly it. Yeah. I uh, the, the reason I wanted to bring that up is specifically because I was hoping you guys would get to that is that it's ownership. It's yours. You're the one screwing up. You're the I was the one that was allowing all this stuff to happen. Nobody told me to stop. Nobody told me to relax. Nobody told me to let all those uh, things slide past. I did. I let myself do it. And it wasn't until many years later that I was like, Okay, so when you came to the realization, whenever that was, last year, 10 years ago, whatever, it doesn't matter, how did you rebuild out of it? Mm. I started doing the little things again. Like I started, uh, the mindset shifted from, uh, it, we talked about this a little while ago when I, I came up with the concept, the, uh, the topic of, what about me? What about me? And that was... That was the mindset. The mindset shift was I stopped caring whether or not I was going to be seen or heard or lauded or patted on the back or whatever it was. And it became more about, I just want to do it. I just want to do it. I want to be able to do this. I want to be able to do that. So, you know, when my uh, my back would flare up and I would be like, no, I still want to be able to go to jujitsu or I want to be able to go do whatever. And I had to tell myself, no, just be calm. You'll be able to go to jujitsu in two or three days. There's no point in hurting yourself further, allowing yourself to degrade. Um, or when it came to dealing with PTSD, same deal was I'm the one that has to fix it. I can't rely on my psychologist to tell me what to do. I can't rely on my, on my, my wife to tell me what to do. If I want something, I'm the one that has to do it. And so I started building my foundations. It was <clears throat> actually, I got this uh, mental image when you guys, John, you were talking about uh, artful complaining. We've, I remember this very particular spot. We were filling sandbags. And I mean, you guys know what filling sandbags is like. It's not a pleasant experience, but uh, we were having a great old time about it and we were laughing and chilling and we were still filling sandbags at the time, but we were all complaining, but we were still working. And there was one particular guy who continued to complain, but stopped working. And then he keep, he became the pariah <laughs> because he was no longer working. And so a lot of it, that's where it stems is that well, you make a choice. He became the go, cancer, not the pariah. Oh, did I use the wrong terminology? Well, I don't know if you, you can use whatever terminology you want, but as I see that moment where that guy stopped working and just continued to complain to maybe try to turn the tide of the work effort into a cancerous moment, mm. I see it as a cancer, not as a pariah. And if it spreads, I mean, if you even give that one second, it'll spread like wildfire sometimes in the troops. And so that has to get smashed right in the moment like that guy needs an instant recalibration by the troops around him or by a senior nco who steps in and gives that guy what's what that's why i use the term pariah because that's what happened we all like we all jumped on him like what are you doing get your get your shovel back in the thing and it was a uh it became the pariah but it's a good point because it is a cancer and if you take that as a microcosm and put it in your own head it's those thoughts, the same thing that I wish I had had someone to uh, correct me in the moment. But I needed to correct myself. <laughs> so it would have been nice to, uh, to do that in those moments was to 
hard correction when you get those little thoughts in your head or like, ah, I don't need to work that hard. I don't need to push myself that degree. I don't need to uh, rehab this shoulder, right? I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. Keep doing the same thing that I've been doing that has led me into the situation that I'm at. There's a difference between keep going on rehab and keep oh, going on whining. Yeah. One I mean. makes you yeah. better. One makes you worse. One makes you better. One makes everyone around you worse. Mm-hmm. So how do you, uh, let's say we know some people that are in the degraded state. I imagine we probably it's all It's half do. of the internet. It's half the internet. So. At least. <laughs> so what do and we I'm do? I'm not talking about political affiliations or about mm-hmm. religion or about anything. I mean, there's fully half of the internet that is just constantly whining about something. And I get it. We can all whine about things. Try to make it artful, not just a cancerous whining. Mm. Have a solution to it. A solution, yeah. 100%. Uh, but here, now here's the, the question, because we could, <clears throat> we could start setting boundaries, right? And try to limit our interactions with the internet. I know lots of people that have said, nope, not doing social media. Nope, not doing this, not doing that, which limits their interaction with the rest of the world but it is a type of boundary. Um, whereas, you know, I think what we're doing with the collective is to engage it headfirst and try to rebuild. So how do we, how do we get others on board on board? How do we develop the rebuilding phase of all those complainers who aren't artful? Anyone? Well, I think some of it is we've talked about this before is, you have to call people out. I mean, if you see something that's inappropriate, whether it's on social media or in daily life, you have to call it out. You can't just be quiet and, and let it happen. You need to address it and confront it. Mm-hmm. Eleanor, Sean? Just uh, how? I think that, how would you, I think it's very much up to the individual recognizing that you're there and now the next step is how do I get out of this? Mm. Um, I'm big into the you know, environment trumps will. Um, at my place, I, I, I don't pride myself on having champions. I don't pride myself on um, having the most amount of affiliates in schools. I pride myself on the environment that I've created. Um, we have we have people that are, have the ability that are better than others, and it is used as a motivational tool as someone can do something to me that I can't do in return. And I always like your training partner is your best source of information. They caught you on that. Guess what? Ask them how they got that, how they got how you fell into that trap. Cause I guarantee you, you're going to see it again. So when that happens, and especially with that person, you can actually dissect everything that you've done onto the last, you know, crucial moment to where it turns into a submission to learn from that and build off of that. But it does take the individual to kind of like swallow his ego, tap and say, How, how'd you do that? And mm-hmm. if you have that environment where it's constantly pushed, anyone asks, my first instructor, I learned so much from him. My very first jujitsu instructor was literally one of the worst people I've ever met. 
And I'm not just talking about on the mat. I'm talking about off the mat. I learned exactly what not to do in so many levels. I'd have a question about the stuff that he would do in class. His response, I, I can't make this up. That's a great question for a private. So everything mm. was geared around, wow. you know, himself and how to keep himself better than everybody else. So I learned from that. Anyone has a question, I don't care what it's about. If I have the time, I will go through the entire thing. And I always try to do that. You know, I'll take an entire round and stay with the person, the white belt that I just went with. And I'll go over, hey, these are the key things that I saw. But what did you feel that was lacking? You know, um, and once. And this is a huge thing um, for especially beginners. Um, when they're going with someone that that's so much more advanced and apologize, Julie, I don't, I don't have a, a general um, example for this. But how many times have you rolled with a white belt, Sean, or Chance, that just stepping on and they're so reserved? They're just like, and then you ask them, like, what are you doing? You know, why aren't you trying to attack? Well, you already know everything that I'm going to do. My first question is, how do you know that? You might have just picked up something I've never seen before and just fly by my guard. I don't, I, I don't know what you know. So this is the time with the more advanced people give everything that you got, lay it all out. That way we actually have a good determination of what needs to be changed and how you're doing it. Because if you're always being reserved, I don't know what your capabilities are. So show me what your capabilities are and we'll build off of those. Yeah. Great thought. Yeah. Sean? I heard you say something there, Alan, and you, you started off the, the, your initial phase with within your, organization you have some that are better than others but you have focused or categorically aligned yourself with creating a culture of betterment so irrespective of whether someone's better than anyone else in your organization everyone is focused on betterment whether it's a brand new white belt or it's a black belt your your question that you would pose to that white belt of why don't you try? Who knows? And, and I think that's important for not just a casual statement, but it's a, it's an important consideration for a black belt, black belt mindset. And you can position it to the other person in front of you along the lines of bro, who knows, you might know something that I don't know. And now you're kind of holding back your knowledge from me. Let's let's create a win-win where we can both learn off each other in this moment. That's pretty encouraging to a white belt or anyone who's new to the game, where they now understand that their opinion is valued. It doesn't mean that they're a black belt. It just means that they may have experienced something in life that is cool that we're going to learn from. So... In rebuilding, when we look at the internet as a whole, the, 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 the part of the internet that isn't doing it well, we'll say, how do they rebuild? Well, first of all, I got to be able to look them in the eye and say, I respect your opinion. What is your opinion? Let's figure it out how we can both become better in this moment. I'm not going to give a hallway pass to anyone who's ignorant. If you're, if you're just straight up ignorant, I'll, I'll always call you out. But I won't call you out just because I'm in the mood to call someone out. It's because you deserve it. But hopefully before I call you out, before I call you out, we can see eye to eye on something 
and both learn from the moment, just like I try to do on the BJJ mats all the time. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts, Julie? I think Alan's point uh, was key in terms of keeping a positive and open environment so people can learn. And in terms of a cycling example, I can remember when I first started being coached by Sean and I was out uh, to Ralston a couple of times riding with him. And Sean's a great rider, specifically, he's a really good descender. And some of the rides, I remember he wanted me to go up front. And I thought, well, I don't, why would I do that? I don't want to go up front. I mean, I'm not, at the time, I wasn't that good of a descender. And I thought, well, this is terrifying. Why do I want him to see what I'm doing? But then I thought, well, no, if I want to get better and improve, it's an open environment. I need to go up front so he can assess my technique and give me some positive feedback. So if you're in a comfortable environment, then you can grow and learn. So you have to be open and make sure the person feels comfortable in perhaps showing their vulnerability so they can get better. And then you will be able to rebuild and grow. I don't know why, but I can picture you like cycling and Sean just saying, get up there now, closing your eyes, putting your head down and pushing forward and having all those thoughts in a flash. Well, that's exactly it. You know what he's like. It's like go time. You don't really have a lot of time to think, but you just go and hopefully it works out. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And it always did work out, Julie, because you're a rock star who, who committed to your own excellence. You owned your own awesomeness. The only little bit that I ever threw in was a little bit of calibration. The rest of it, as they say, is history. You earned your own path. Well, thank you, but not without your help. <laughs> we uh, we're almost at time here, and I just wanted to, I guess, double tap on a, a little bit of a mixture of what you guys are all saying. But the the concept of the culture is, I think, looked at as an external thing quite often, right? It's the culture around you, or the people around you, or the thing like that. But it really is up here right? Your own personal culture and how you manage your own mentality and how you manage your mindset is a big part of it. And I really like what you said there, Sean, about it's not about who's better, it's about better mint. And I think growing up for a lot of North America, we are constantly comparing ourselves to each other. As you get older, as you become a teenager, as you become a young adult, you're, you're, you're trying to figure out who you are by comparing yourself to your peers. And the real trick is getting out of the stage of who's better and getting into how do I become better and just living in that culture of betterment. And that is a very, it's a difficult spot to, <laughs> to get, to get over that hump. And I think that is, uh, what we're trying to do here, but uh, I got the quick comment. Any thoughts before we, uh, get close to wrapping her up? All good. Okay. So we got a couple comments. Uh, Gerben said BJJ has a pretty unique community. Maybe it is a bit different now, but in 2012, it was a big competition in Europe. A brown belt beat someone from a different gym from a different country. And afterwards, I saw them on the warm-up mats, and the winner was showing and explaining to the other guy what he did in that match. And that didn't happen at Muay Thai tournaments. I think that's a, a valid point. The uh, The culture is interesting, and we, <laughs> we need to keep it as fluid and open as possible and we're going to do another and collaborative and collaborative exactly we're going to be doing another 
talk at some point i have one on my list here one of the topics is gatekeeping and we'll we'll get into that eventually um but first off julie alan really appreciate you jumping in here this is an awesome chat sean thank you as always any final thoughts from anything we've talked about on mindset or boundaries alan um growth is always going to be uncomfortable um as julie mentioned it can be terrifying but those monsters end up being little teddy bears, you know, on the other side, once you kind of break through that. And I think if you conquer that one, you could always use that as your anchor to, to conquer the next and the next one and the next one after that. It's just getting, just double down, grit your teeth, push your head down, push through, get that one win. That's all it takes is that one boundary to be broken. And you can break down every single one after that. If you just hold on to that. Great point. Julie, any final thoughts? Yeah, that's an awesome point. I think just uh, push on and compare. Don't compare yourself to others. Compare yourself to your own uh, achievements and your own successes and failures. That's uh, what you need to do. And I think I always, from a race perspective, it was always race your race. So race yourself. And those are some of the best outcomes that I had. Outstanding. Sean, any final thoughts? Yeah, speaking of uh, culture and trying to create one that's more positive and, and wants more betterment, there are two things that I always think. I'm always racing myself, and there's always someone watching my race. Mm -hmm. And so it's my job to do my best, but I always keep in mind that other people are evaluating their themselves against me. Now, whether they're doing that evaluation negatively or positively, I suppose at the end of the day, it doesn't matter to me because I can't control their mind until I talk to them, maybe. But in the meantime, while they're making that comparison, if at the very least they think, that guy sucks, I'll never be that, at least it's planted a seed that it's possible. Hopefully they can take the negativity out of it and say, how the hell did that guy do that? I'd like to give that a crack. Well... Presto changeo. It's our job to do our best, but it's our job to do the best for all those around us who are watching. Outstanding. Um, well, with that as a as another mic drop moment that Sean can't drop his mic because he's on a boom. But <laughs> the I really again want to uh, say thanks to Alan, Julie, Sean. I we have definitely learned a lot, and I am going to implement everything we've learned today to help build myself so that I can grow continuously here on the collective every day. We'll talk to y'all tomorrow. Chimo. Thank you. Thank you. Chimo.